In all seriousness, today we are continuing our series. We are coming toward the final aspect of um, the book of Hebrews. We have this Sunday, and then we have one more Sunday. And I pray that this book has been an encouragement to you. Um, I understand that there's a lot of repetition in the beginning, but the whole point in this is my heart for you is to be able to take this book and to really understand what it is at its core. Um, it is one thing to look at isolated pieces of scripture, but it is a whole nother thing to be able to see how they fit within the context of a book, but then also how that book fits in context with the entirety of scriptures. And so this morning, we are moving toward the latter part of the book of Hebrews. We're entering into chapter 13, and to be honest with you, what we're going to begin to see is just very straightforward applicational pieces of do X, do Y, do this, do that. But in order for us to understand that, and in order for us to actually move and engage in it, we can't miss the entirety of the foundation that has been laid all the way up to the 13th chapter. We know and we understand that the purpose behind this book is that Christ has come, he had lived, he had died, he had risen from the grave, he had ascended into heaven, and he had said, look, I will be back for you. Uh, people of that day had begun to put their faith and trust in Jesus. But what we need to remember is the Jewish people of the day, or God's people, had been under the Old Testament law for centuries. They had been under temple worship. They had been under the sacrificial system. And now Christ had come and atoned for people's sins. A one and done thing of what we know about and what we're grateful but the problem was, as people were coming to place their faith and trust in Jesus, they were beginning to be persecuted for their faith. They were having a hard time. And so as they engaged in Jesus, simultaneously, the old system, even though theologically it had been changed, temporally it was still continuing. You have to lay that foundation in that context to understand why the author of Hebrews was writing to encourage those who were beginning to say, you know what, I'm kind of looking at this Jesus thing, I'm kind of thinking about who he is and what he's done, but he's not worth it, and so I'm going to go back to the way things were. It's better if we go back to the Old Testament system. And so through that, the author spends the entirety of the first several chapters of the book demonstrating the superiority of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, helping us to see and know that he is the best of the best and that we can forget all the rest. The whole purpose of this is to demonstrate via the fact that Christ is better than the prophets, he's better than Moses, he's better than the sacrificial system, he's better than the law, he is the great high priest, and then last week we saw that because of Christ, we are no longer in comparison part of Mount Sinai where Moses received the Ten Commandments, we are part of Mount Zion, the unshakable kingdom. All of those pieces need to be laid on this foundation before we move into these next couple of verses. Because what we're going to see is when we are exhorted to do X, Y, and Z, if that foundation in our understanding has not been laid, we look back and we say, well, why? What's the purpose? Why did we do these things? And so this morning, the question that we're asking is simply this. Knowing that we have the best of the best in Christ, and that we are a part of an unshakable kingdom, how should we live? The author has said all of these things. He's laid the foundation saying that you in Christ have placed your faith and trust in him. Your sins are completely forgiven. You're no longer part of an Old Testament sacrificial system that he demonstrated and proved was essentially just a farce. It was a repetitious act, year after year after year after year, decade after decade after decade after decade, century after century after century after century, that only had the ability, as we see, to cleanse us on the outside, right? We all look good, we all scrub up, we look good on the outside, but it had the inability to cleanse us on the inside, 
And what he means in that is it had the inability to forgive us of our sin. So brothers and sisters in Christ, the reason that I'm demonstrating that is simply this. We cannot have our sins forgiven and we cannot be placed or declared righteous before God apart from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Period. And the reason that is so important is so often in our lives, we want to add something to our credit. I'm saved because of blah. Sure, I trust Jesus Christ, but really my salvation is this. I know that I'm doing this because I come to church on Sunday. Not a bad thing, but lovingly I'm going to tell you, coming to church on Sunday isn't what saves you. I know I'm saved, or I know I'm a good person because I'm involved in a Bible study. Not a bad thing, but a Bible study isn't what saves you. Okay? Repeat, rinse, wash, whatever it is that you want to do. We want to add something to accredit our salvation. Until we understand that we have nothing to accredit our salvation other than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our magnified and holistic worship of Him will be compromised. When we do, we engage in a wholehearted spirit of worship, recognizing that Christ is indeed our Savior. If we can't do it on our own, yet Christ has done it wholly for us in a one-time act, a one-and-done, that's how we worship Jesus. And so the author says, if that's true, which we know it is, why would you want to go back to the Old Testament? Why would you want to go back to a system that is incomplete and unable to do what it says? In fact, why do you want to go back to a system that is really there not to forgive you of your sins, but to prove how utterly sinful you are and how desperately you need a Savior in Jesus Christ? That's where we're at. And so if you have your Bibles with you, we're turning to this transitional portion where the author is going to essentially summarize the foundation of the unshakable kingdom and then move into exhortation. Before we go in there, several of you might be looking at your bulletin, and I want to ask you, as you look at the picture on there, is that picture familiar to anyone? Does that resonate with anybody here? Do you know what that kingdom is? That kingdom is a picture of Mont Saint-Michel, and it is a kingdom that actually exists. It is on the beaches outside of the upper part of France, kind of near Normandy, that area. And the reason that this is sort of such a neat thing is the actual realm of where this is is placed out into the sea about a quarter mile. And the reason that's so important is this place was so fortified, it was extremely hard to penetrate. Because what would happen is, as the sea and the tide would rise, you either had to contend with water, but in the moments that the sea would recede, okay, or recede, excuse me, you had to contend with uh, like muddy bogs, marshes, and it was very hard to move troops forward to attack this kingdom. And so the picture of that is to demonstrate essentially what an unshakable kingdom might look like. But my other point in this is as strong as that kingdom is, we've read that that kingdom too will fall. The only unshakable kingdom is the kingdom that we have in Zion, our heavenly kingdom of which we receive when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The authors come off of a comparison of Mount Sinai to Zion, demonstrating what we have in Jesus. And so, he transitions, and in verse 29, okay, saying, since we have Mount Zion, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not to forget to entertain strangers. For by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners. And those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. 
Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And the reason that I took time to lay that foundation is brothers and sisters in Christ and friends who are gathered here this morning, you cannot say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to to me? If you do not understand the superiority of Jesus and the fact that he is the best of the best. That whole context where that is being quoted is coming out of a statement in the Old Testament. None of that makes sense if you don't read what's been found, uh, foundationally written all the way up to here. And so there's a couple of things that I want to do. There's a few things that I want you to see. We're coming off of chapter 12, but we're basing everything off of what's been written. And so the first thing that I want to exhort you in, and the first thing that you need to be encouraged about, is essentially that first statement. Friends and brothers and sisters in Christ, because we are receiving an unshakable kingdom, may we worship God with reverence and awe. Now think about that. It's interesting because the author writes we are receiving, meaning it is received and future. So interestingly enough, theologically speaking, when we've placed our faith and trust in Jesus, we are his. We have the Holy Spirit within us. The kingdom is ours. Okay? You possess it today. But I don't know about you, when I look around this world, as much as I enjoy it and love it, not that great of a kingdom, is it? Okay? So it is a present tense possession. You have it, you receive it, but you are receiving the kingdom future. And that is Zion, which is coming and will be established when Christ comes again. That's something that we put our hope and our faith and our trust in. But also, I want to ask you this. Let us be thankful. I want to ask you a quick question this morning. And be honest with yourself. When you came to church, and I get it, okay? Um, you got kids, you're rushing, you're scrambling, you're doing your thing. Did you ever take a second to say thank you, Lord? Thank you that we have the opportunity to come and worship you in an air-conditioned building with screens behind us, microphones to listen to some guy who's nasally because of this retreat. Father, thank you for what you've done in my life. Thank you that I'm saved. Thank you that I'm yours. Thank you that you went to the cross for me, even though I don't deserve it. Thank you that you've given me the life that you've given to me. Thank you that I know that no matter what happens here in this world, I am yours. And on the day that I draw my last breath or the day that you choose to come and collect your bride, I know that my hope is secure in you and that I will be part of that unshakable kingdom. As great as Mont Saint-Michel is, as pictorially, as beautiful as that is, that's a pale comparison to the kingdom of which I will enter with you. Friends, this week, have you taken any moments to go before God and say, thank you for you? Or do we go before God and say, I want this, I need that? Now, there's nothing wrong with going and putting out your petitions before God, asking Him for things that you need, going to Him in your hurt and your pain, praying for other people. But so often that crowds, and we just go to God, and we kind of use Him as a vending machine. And lovingly, what I want to encourage you in is how much greater is God when we go to Him and we say, thank you for what you have done. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you that you were willing to go to the cross on my behalf, even though you didn't deserve it, even though you did nothing wrong, even though you are holy and righteous and just, even though if I was there, I wouldn't have said, oh Jesus, I love you. I would have said, crucify, crucify, crucify. So friends, I exhort you, I plead with you, 
in your time of worship with him, take time to be thankful. Not for what you have materialistically today, but for what you have in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The other thing that I want to ask you is this. Do we worship God with reverence and awe? I love the fact that I can go to my Savior, that I can go to him as a broken individual, and I know that he will receive me wholeheartedly and fully because of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I love the fact that we read in the book of Hebrews that we're no longer separated, essentially, from the Holy of Holies, but we can approach the throne with confidence because of what Christ has done. But also, may we look back and remember and recognize the holiness of God, the greatness of God. Yes, we can communicate with him, but friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, let's not reduce God to an equal plane of which we converse with him and say, God, this is what I think you should do. I didn't put the heavens in place. I haven't created the world. I haven't made man and woman. I haven't set time in motion. I don't hold all things in my hand. And so lovingly, yes, we may converse with our Lord. Yes, we may have those deep, intimate moments. And we are so grateful for it. My brothers and sisters in Christ and people who are gathered here this morning, may we not come to God and approach Him with demands and say, this is what you must do. May we look to Him and say, Father, thank you in the great vastness of space and the entirety of the cosmos in all of creation that you think of me as intimately as you do. Father, thank you that you even engage with me and that you want to hear me. May we exalt him as Lord, not as someone in, th in whom we look at and say, you're not doing it right. And then we continue on. And are we in awe of him? One of the things that's interesting, and then I just love how God works this, um, you know, over the, the retreat, there were two things that we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the consuming fire in a minute, but also um, the evening that we were out um, up at Meiskin's Ground, uh, the full moon was over, and um, there were moments where... Uh, right, wrong, or different in my age, I needed to get up and leave the tent for um, certain things. Um, but in that, as, as it was quiet and everybody was sleeping, you could look out and you could just see the stars, you could see the moon, you could see his creation. And just in those brief moments, you look and you think, oh my gosh, God, how amazing are you? I'm in awe of who you are. And then you again go back and you think about the fact that as vast as the cosmos is, as as big as the universe is, that God knows me intimately and deeply through my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do we come to worship God with reverence and awe? Or do we come just to sit in the pew, to tick it off the box, to get it done, to say, God, I went to church today, I did my thing, now bless me. Brothers and sisters in Christ, lovingly, I tell you, if you want to be blessed by God, be in awe and reverence of Him. Why? Because we continue on. And the author writes this, for our God is a consuming fire. And interestingly enough, anybody who was paying attention, anybody who would look back to what was, would look and that would resonate with their hearts, not just in a sort of an a, um, illustrative way, but they would say, oh, I've heard that somewhere. I've seen that somewhere. Because the author's quoting Deuteronomy 4.24 about the consuming aspect of God, about the greatness of who God is. And anyone who would look back, they would go back to the Old Testament and say, that's the God that we worship. That's the God who is. How many of you have sat around a campfire and stared into its flames? Kind of hard to turn your eyes away from it, right? You know, there's something majestic and awesome 
about the presence of God because his glory consumes everything. And this truth, in the literal aspect, imagine your eyes looking into a fire and recognize how consuming it truly is. His glory consumes everything. When you look to God, when you see who he is, when you read his word, when you understand what he's done, when you understand who you are in Christ, you should be consumed by the glory of God, by who you are in Jesus, by what you possess in him, by what you are destined for. Because his glory consumes everything. The author quoting from Deuteronomy 4, 23 through 24 is reminding his readers to remember that they are to hold up their end of the covenant made with Moses because God would uphold his. Continue in who you are with Christ. Follow, seek, worship him because what I will tell you is God has said he would and he will and he has done and he will again. Our God is faithful and he is just and he is able to be trusted. Friends, like a consuming fire, God wants our fully devoted attention so that our hearts are completely committed to him. I'm not talking legalism. I'm not talking everybody must be in their Bibles at least two hours a day and blah, 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 blah. I'm talking about your heart. I'm talking about your life. And friends, one of the things that I think that would be amazing, we want revival, we want to see God move. Friends, God will move when our hearts are consumed by him. If we're sitting there saying, let's go and let's see God do big things. But every other day we're like, "Ah, I don't need God, I don't need this. If people look at us and they don't see our hearts burning for him, why should there even be a spark in theirs? Like a consuming fire, God wants our fully devoted attention so that our hearts are completely committed to him. Friends, God cannot and will not pour out his blessings when we are lackluster in our faith. We see this idea in 2 Chronicles 16.9 which states, For the eyes of the Lord Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Remember that this quote comes off the foundation of Hebrews 12, which is about discipline, holy living, and obeying God. We are saved by grace through faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I am not saying that we go back to the Old Testament system. But brothers and sisters in Christ, if we are saved and we are His, the fruit of our lives are demonstrated by us being disciplined in him and wanting to obey his word. Let me put it another way. You cannot say I love Jesus, but I do not love the Bible. Because the revelation of our Savior and knowing him and understanding him is right here. On that foundation, the author then transitioned into what we call the concluding exhortations. What you're going to see, and to be honest with you, it's very simple. There's no magic to this. To be honest with you, basically what I'm doing in these points is just repeating what the author is saying. But here's what I'm going to tell you. We can just tick this off and say, oh, we need to do this, we need to do that, we need to do these things. But if we don't foundationally lay this fact, about who God is, about the blessing that we have in him, and look and treat him as such to the point that God is a consuming fire in our life. These points are going to be sort of, ah, maybe, ah, whenever. And so the author turns and he says, okay, now that we've established this, keep on loving each other as brothers. Well, 
my point? Right? Try to make it fancy. Wow. Keep on loving one another as brothers. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ. But interestingly enough, one of the things that's uh, important to see here is the word love there. Right? Anybody know what that word is in Greek? It's not the word agape. Agape is the unconditional, irrevocable, undeniable love of God. But the word there, and it will sound familiar to you in a moment when I say it, is this. Philadelphi. Sound familiar? It's the word from which we derive the famous city of where our Declaration of Independence was signed. Philadelphia. Or the city of brotherly love. And the reason for this, and the reason why he writes this is, is he's writing to create an aspect of a location of which individuals can come and be loved and encouraged in the faith by one another. A communal aspect in which people come from backgrounds that are separate and different from different ethnicities, from different areas, from different personal areas of what they do. To be unified in one magnified purpose, which is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. May we keep on loving each other as Philadelphi, those who are in Christ. Philadelphia is the Greek word that's used here while well, an exhortation to the people reading the letter of Hebrews. The meaning of this word is the place of brotherly love. It has a connotation of coming together in worship and relates to the previous verse. The foundation of what this is is relating back to the fact of because we have this unshakable kingdom, <coughs> may we worship with reverence and awe, because our God is a consuming fire. Therefore, let's do this. And so friends, one of the things that I will tell you is, is, if we want to love one another, if we want to see that expressed in our congregation, if we want to truly see the love of God among us, it begins internally with each of us to look to God as our consuming fire. To worship Him with reverence and awe. And that will then establish the fact that we can keep on loving one another as brothers. The next one is this. Do not forget to entertain strangers by doing, uh, doing uh, so. Some have en uh, entertained angels without knowing it. And so essentially, the simplest way to put it is be hospitable and aware to the needs of others. We're going to talk about this in a moment, but are, are, are we looking to the needs of other people? When we're aware of a need, are we saying, oh, the other guy will do it? If God places a need right in front of us, do we disobey it? Do we move on and say, oh, somebody else will figure it out? It's interesting. Let me just ask you this question. I wonder how many times you might have had an opportunity to entertain an angel and you simply passed that opportunity by. The author continues on and he says, remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Now, I don't want to take this verse out of context. What it's not saying is we need to go and we need to minister to people in prison, although that's not a bad thing, okay? Prison ministries are wonderful. And if God calls you to do something like that, I'm not saying don't, but in the context of what is written here, it is not saying go to those who are imprisoned who have been bad. It's saying, go to those who are prisoners because they've placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and now they are being persecuted for their faith. It's foundationally off the context of why the book had been written. So brothers and sisters in Christ, do we even care 
Do we even pray for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who right now in this world, as they worship Jesus, if they were to come together like we are today, the military or radical dissidents or people who do not have the foundational faith in Jesus Christ could and possibly would and will enter and either imprison or martyr these people for their faith. Because it's happening all around the world. And you know what's interesting? In those places, in those areas where that's occurring, God is moving like a consuming fire. Friends, do we pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we even think about them? Or are they just a passing glance as we move on and say, God, please help Denver beat the bears? Which now they're going to lose. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners. We say brother and sister in Christ because when we place our faith and trust in Jesus, we are united in his kingdom. We are family. And if we are family and our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ are suffering, we too should be suffering for them. And then we get to this next one. Verse 4. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. We're all adults here. I'm going to just talk for a minute. I'm going to speak to this. There's a few things that I think that we need to encourage our hearts and our lives in. I think as we look around the world, it's easy to say that entertainment today is so sensually driven, so sensualized, that it's very hard to go through any form of a, of a story or a movie or a television show where the act of sexual expression isn't sort of glorified, for lack of a better word. It's hard in this world to hold true to the joy of the sexual act which has been relegated for a man and a woman to be enjoyed in the sanctity of marriage. And one of the things that I think is so hard, one of the things that I think is so important, we have so reduced it, we have so put it into something where we take that act and we distribute it to a point where it is for the enjoyment of the individual, not the expression of two mutually agreed consenting adults who have gone together and said, we are committed to one another under our Lord for the rest of our lives. Friends, I'm going to just take a minute and tell you that the joy of sexual expression is so wonderful when the two individuals are looking at one another and saying, I love you and you are mine and together we are God's. And yet, we've so reduced that holy act into something that it has to be in the TV to keep the ratings going. Man, it breaks my heart. And I'm not speaking to anyone here. I'm talking just statistically. that there is not a very large difference, if at all, 
between men in the church who are addicted to pornography to secular men who are also addicted to pornography. There's got to be a difference. And lovingly, I tell you, I am not condemning you, but how can we be salt and light to the world when we ourselves are not following the love and the leading of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ? Now the other thing that I want to say is this. This is such a challenging thing. And so to start off, what I will tell you is simply this. I am a proponent of abstinence. Okay, so there's the foundation. I am a proponent of abstinence. But I will tell you that I was not a follower of that until Kelly and I, as we began to court one another, honored that And I went to her father and I said, may I have the hand of your daughter? And the reason that he said yes is because when we started dating, I went to him and I said, I have full intentions to honor her as Christ has honored her. And I ask you to hold me accountable to that. And we look at that and we're, we, we think it's crazy. Now, I'm not exalting myself. But what I will tell you is this. God has honored that. And I, I, I'm trying to keep this. The joy of that act with us is so much greater because of how we have honored him. Maybe that's the simplest way to put it. The next thing that I want to tell you is for those who have not, please do not be condemned. That's not what I'm telling you here, okay? What, 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 I, what I'm not trying to tell you is, is if, if that has been something where you have uh, moved into that area or if that's maybe an area where you've struggled I don't want you thinking like that's the unforgivable sin, okay? Uh, one of the things that I think is so hard with churches is that we set that up to such a pedestal that we think that if for some reason we falter, right, that we've committed like the unforgivable act and that we're now just never ever going to be right before God. The only unforgivable sins, brothers and sisters in Christ, is what? blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, denial of God. So lovingly, what I want to tell you is our world, as followers of Christ, we should be proponents of abstinence. We should be exalting the marriage bed. We should be demonstrating the joy of marriage, commitment to one another. But yet, for those that might have not gone in the abstinent route, I don't want you thinking that every time you come to church, God is looking at you saying, I don't love you. You committed the unforgivable sin. You are forgiven. You do receive his love, his mercy, and his grace. You are whole in him. But because of that, may we therefore go and may we work and live our lives in accordance with, with, his, uh, with his, what is commanded. The final thing that I want to talk about is this. Sexually immoral. Friends, that, that goes so far, and there's such a vast realm that is there. One of the things that I want to tell you is this. Men, honor your wife. She is a gift given to you by God. Men, let me tell you, 
God made man. And he didn't stop there. He made woman because we're not complete. And he made woman out of man. And so when you become unified in marriage, the two of you are bonded in a mysterious but real expression of who God is. And marriage is the visual expression of our marriage to the bride of Christ. If we're following Jesus and we're not honoring our marriage, lovingly, we need to go and examine back to what we've just read. Guys, your wife should know that she's loved. Know that she's cherished. And I'm not perfect. I'm not saying I've got this all figured out. But I tell you, I go before God and I say, Lord, help me every day to honor my wife and let her know that she is my most prized earthly possession apart from you. Whew, heavy, huh? Take a breath. Final thing I want to tell you, and we've been talking a little bit about this. Um, we're in this crazy cycle in our, uh, in our life group. We read the whole thing about, you know, um, husbands love your wives, women submit to your husband, right? Women submit to your husband, right? Like, I don't want to submit to my, what are you talking about? Submit to my husband, right? Then is it Aretha Franklin, you know? I want some R-E-S-P-E-C-T, right? Let me explain it this way. Guys, if you're going to your wife and you're not loving her and you're unga unga her, submit to me, that is not godly love. And I see that happening in the church. I see guys abusing their wife and saying, I am the head of the home, I am the one who leads, you are to submit to me. And yet they are not loving their wife. Agape love, unconditional, irrevocable, undeniable. Men, when you love your wife as Christ loves you, your wife will submit to you because she sees Christ through you. That's the point of the passage. So men, work on loving your wife as Christ loves the church. And she will do nothing but submit because you have died for her. We get to the next one. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. That's coming out of Deuteronomy 31.6. It's the promise that God has given to the people, encouraging them to continue to move forward and trust in his provisions for them. But interestingly enough, when we look at this, the actual word there in the Greek, okay, is aphilarheros. Okay, it's not a hero. Don't get hungry. Lunch is coming. But what it is, is it's to be without covetedness. That's the actual word. And so a couple of things that I want to encourage you in. We are in probably what is the most prosperous nation. We are way blessed beyond our belief. So the first thing that I want to encourage you in is this. 
It is not saying not to go out and to work hard. And for those of you that work hard, and if God has given you great salaries, praise God for it. That's not what's being said. It is also not being said to feel guilty if you are wealthy. It's not what's being said here. What's being said here is if your heart is after this radical pursuit of more money and power, or if you're the person when your neighbor gets the boat that's this big, you have to go out and buy the same boat that's two inches bigger. That's covetedness. And here's what I'm going to tell you. We're not a covenant nation, are we? <laughs> Friends, I was in the ad industry before I was a pastor for four years. I worked for a market strategy firm. And what were we told? The manner of how you get people to pay attention is you go in and you drive and you make them feel like what they have isn't enough. And that if they get what you're selling them, their life is going to be whole. That's what sells. Sounds like covetedness to me. Are we grateful for what we have? Are we content with what God has given? Now again, see the difference. I'm not saying not work hard. I'm not saying if God promotes you and you make more money, you know, this, that, and the other thing. That's not what's being said here. But I'm going to tell you, when we look at the ads of today, there is a whole lot of covetedness going on. Do we trust what God has said? Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Now here's the whole point. Okay? Foundationally, we've seen all of this, the whole book up to the end of chapter 12, and then we move into these exhortations. So that, okay, we get into verse 6. All of this, so that we can say with confidence. If you want to say with confidence the following verse, all of this other stuff should be foundationally what you're striving for. Foundationally how you're moving in your life. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Quoting out of Psalm 118, 6 and 7. Friends, when we understand we've been given an unshakable kingdom, when we understand that we have the best of the best in Jesus Christ, when we understand that when we ask for forgiveness of our sins, we are wholly forgiven, we are wholly His, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, our lives move forward and God becomes a consuming fire. And therefore, as a consuming fire, our eyes are so driven on Him that everything around us, all of the distractions of the world, pale in comparison into what we have in Jesus Christ. And so these things begin to become a natural expression because our eyes are focused on Jesus. And therefore, we love our brothers as Philadelphia. Therefore, we are hospitable to the needs of other people. Therefore, we are praying for those who are persecuted. Therefore, we are just automatically honoring our, our marriage bed because we love our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and we're grateful for the gift that God has given to us to honor and to cherish and to bring up. And when we have possessions, we're grateful for them, but they're not what bring identity. They're not what bring our sense of who we are. Our identity is in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And therefore, with confidence, we can say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? We've gone through this. We've looked at this. And this is what I want to leave you with this morning. Because we have the best of the best in Christ, we are part of an unshakable kingdom. But because of that, 
May we live lives that reflect Christ, knowing that he is with us always, even in times of trouble, because the foundation of what's being written here is being written to those who are struggling. Final thing I want to leave you with is simply this. Individuals would have heard this word. Individuals would have seen what was going on. Individuals would have read that text. They would have looked over. They would have seen the fact that the worship in the temple was continuing, even though Christ had risen, even though the veil had been torn. They would have seen and they would have said, nothing's changed. And friends, similarly today, you might move forward and say, yeah, no big deal, whatever, I'm going to take this and I'm just going to go on and do my thing. Nothing's changed. When is the kingdom coming? And may I remind you, as we've said before, we know that this book was written in around 62 to 65 AD. And people were looking around and saying, what's going to change? And what we know, historically speaking, is, is that five to eight years later, Everything that they saw over there, the temple that was still continuing, was destroyed by an advancing army. Just as that was six or seven years ago, or six or seven years away, we're part of an unshakable kingdom. Now, not saying that coming of Christ is six or seven years away. Might be tomorrow. Might be another thousand years. I don't know. But what I will tell you is just as that was destroyed, so too the unshakable kingdom will come. And all of those promises and all of what we have there is what motivates our hearts to move forward and look at God as a consuming fire, which then lays context to all of the exhortations that the author gives in these verses and will continue to give to the conclusion of the book. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today. Father, we thank you for the book of Hebrews. Father, we thank you for these challenging passages. Father, we thank you for the facts that they are so countercultural. Father, we look at this and we see what you have done for us. We see what we have in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the blessings that have been given. And Father, in that, I pray that because of what we've been given, that our hearts would be transformed as we look to you. And Father, as we essentially look to the consuming fire of your glory, your honor, all of the things that are around you, that we'd be driven more and more to the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit to submit our lives to you. Father, help us in these exhortations to be separated for you so that when other people see us, they do see a true difference. Lord, we're not perfect not saying that we need to be perfect, but we have been perfected in Jesus Christ. And so as Paul said, Lord, if there's any confidence in this, make my joy complete. Make my joy complete. By having individuals go forward and saying, Lord, I want to honor you. I want my life to be different for you so that you might receive honor and glory that's due to you because of what you've done for me. Father, thank you for that unshakable kingdom. Thank you that it is ours and that it is coming. Father, until that day comes, help us labor for you to bring glory and honor to your name. We pray these things in your name, dear Jesus. We ask it by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say,